0: Uh, This hearing will come to order. Thank you. Uh, Let me be the first to welcome you all to the second hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 115th Congress. Uh, I welcome you all to today's hearings on U.S. leadership in the Asia Pacific. Uh, These hearings that we've held, the first hearing we held, this hearing uh, will focus on informing new legislation that uh, we're leading, uh, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, that will seek to build out a long-term vision for United States policy toward the Asia-Pacific region. At our first hearing on March 29th, we focused on the growing security challenges in the Asia-Pacific, including North Korea, South China Sea, and terrorism in Southeast Asia. At that hearing, Randy Forbes, former congressman from Virginia and chair of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Sea Power and Projection Forces, observed the following. In the coming decades, this is the region where the largest armies in the world will camp. This is the region where the most powerful navies in the world will gather. This is the region where over one-half of the world's commerce will take place and two-thirds will travel. This is the region where a maritime superhighway linking the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, Australia, Northeast Asia, and the United States begins. This is the region where two superpowers will compete to determine which world order will prevail. This is the region where the seeds of conflict that could most engulf the world could be planted. It's a very important statement that we hold in mind as we focus on this hearing. So today, we will talk about the importance of U.S. economic leadership in the Asia-Pacific. By 2050, as Congressman Forbes mentioned, experts estimate that Asia will account for over half of the global population and over half of the world's gross domestic product. We cannot ignore the fundamental fact that this region will be critical for the U.S. economy to grow and create jobs through export opportunities. We have two distinguished witnesses joining us today to shed light on this very important topic. Ms. Tammy Overby, who serves as the Senior Vice President for Asia at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and Dr. Robert Orr. There are a lot of ors in Colorado, so I don't know if you have some ores in Colorado that you're related to or not, uh, but uh, certainly a, a lot of ors there, too. Professor and Dean at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, thanks to our witnesses for being with us today, and I certainly look forward to your testimonies. But I'll first turn to uh, Senator Markey, a ranking member of the Asia Subcommittee, for his opening comments.
1: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And we thank you so much for holding this uh, very important uh, hearing. And uh, uh, in, in essence, I think what you're saying here, Mr. Chairman is that you're, you're abiding by the philosophy of Wayne Gretzky. When he, when he was asked, by the way, the second greatest hockey player of all time, when he, was, when, he was asked, when he was asked, you know, how do you score goals? He said, I do not go to where the puck is. I go to where the puck will be. Okay? And so that's really what we're talking about here. How do we, from an economic perspective, get to where the puck will be? Uh, and um, one of the witnesses here at the table knows that the correct answer of the greatest hockey player is uh, Robert Orr, Bobby Orr from the uh, Boston Bruins, so he's, that's, that's one person in the room who knows that answer, so <clears throat> the, the, uh, uh, the greatest hockey player of all time. So, um, so from my perspective, this hearing kind of goes right to how important it's going to be for us to work with uh, like-minded countries towards a high-standard, inclusive, and rules-based regional economic order. Uh, The the, uh, uh, areas of economic leadership in the Asia-Pacific is especially especially critical to our future prosperity. Uh, One good area is is the race to create clean energy jobs. Uh, More than half of all new electric generating capacity installed worldwide last year was renewable. This will only grow further in the future. And I'm concerned that China is rapidly overtaking the United States in this critical uh, sector. Last year, China increased its foreign investment in renewables by 60% to reach a record of $32 billion in one year. This includes 11 new overseas investment deals worth more than $1 billion apiece. In 2015, China invested over $100 billion in clean energy, uh, twice that which we invested here in the United States. That same year, China overtook the United States as the largest market for electric vehicles with over 200,000 registrations. Two Chinese companies, BYD and CATL, are a growing challenge to Tesla's leadership in the global electric car sector. Um, uh, Tianqi Lithium, a Chinese company, is now the world's largest manufacturer of lithium ion, a key element uh, for electric car batteries. Five of the world's six largest solar module manufacturers are Chinese. The list goes on and on, and we could go to other areas of the economy as well. Uh, What it says... To me, is that uh, they have a plan. We need a plan. You know, we need a plan which we can articulate, uh, and that is the job which the chairman has given us. To kind of think through uh, what that economic vision for the future of the United States and this region is going to be, and I'm very much looking forward uh, to this hearing. And uh, I yield back to you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. We're also
0: joined by Senator Portman from Ohio. Thank you, uh, Senator Portman, for being here today. If you'd care to add anything at the beginning of the comments, if not, we can wait till questions. If-
2: no, I'm just honored to have Bobby Orr among us. This is, and he's from Colorado, too, which is amazing. Um, uh, seriously, thank you both for, for holding this hearing. And, and I'm here uh, not as a member of the subcommittee, but someone very interested. I, I'm not going to be able to stay for the entire hearing, but I really want to talk more about some of the issues that were raised already by the chair and ranking member, particularly what is the one belt one road initiative going to mean for us should we be more engaged in it what's the implications of the united states not being as involved in the asian infrastructure investment bank as an example uh, and some of the trade uh, negotiations ongoing in the region and and just I, i'd like to hear you all talk about that i think it's important to raise awareness of what's actually happening in terms of uh, china's interest in expanding its influence, particularly its economic influence, and, and you know, what you recommend that we do in response to that. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate your having this hearing.
0: Thanks, Senator Portman. Our fir- first witness is Ms. Tammy Overby, serves as Senior Vice President for Asia at U.S. Chamber of Commerce. As I mentioned, in this role, Ms. Overby is responsible for developing, promoting, and executing all chamber programs and policies relating to U.S. trade and investment in Asia. Ms. Overby lived and worked in South Korea for 21 years and led the U.S.-Korea Business Coalition in the successful congressional ratification of the U.S.-South Korea Free Trade Agreement. Welcome, Ms. Overby. Uh, Thanks for being with us today. We're also joined by Senator Kaine. I allowed uh, Senator Portman to say a few words if you would like to say a few words. Thank you. And uh, Ms. Overby, if you would like to proceed, proceed, then I will introduce Dr. Orr.
3: Well, thank you very much for this kind invitation. The Asia-Pacific region is critical to current and future U.S. economic growth, competitiveness, and job creation. Asian countries want an active, robust U.S. presence in the region. They want to be our trading partner. But Asian economies are not waiting or standing still after the U.S. withdrawal from TPP. I was just in Hanoi for the meetings of the APEC ministers responsible for trade. APEC economies, including the TPP countries, are moving forward without us. We also heard in Hanoi several cases in which countries explicitly said they're backtracking on their commitments they were prepared to make under the TPP, which would have helped U.S. companies. The U.S. and China share a highly interdependent, complex relationship that is critically important to each other and the world. Congress and the executive branch should recognize that without a coherent policy vision and our own concrete measures, it will be exceedingly difficult for the United States to compete regionally given China's overwhelming presence and influence. China has captured much of the share of the Asian import market over the past 15 years, while the U.S. share has declined from 12.2 percent to 6.6 percent, even as Asian imports have increased more than threefold. U.S. companies continue to see significant economic opportunity in China, uh, but are increasingly concerned about their future there due to China's policies in critical areas ranging from IP to cloud computing. Concerns confronting our members are real and critically important. Business and government must work together to resolve these challenges. We're hopeful the new comprehensive economic dialogue will not only drive time-fixed tangible outcomes, but also persistent and systemic issues, including asymmetries in the market access, a range of industrial policies tied to Made in China 2025, overcapacity, IPR, cybersecurity, data, and antitrust. U.S. companies are operating in a fiercely competitive environment in Asia. China is not only expanding its trade, it's aggressively spreading its economic influence through One Belt, One Road, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, and Silk Road initiatives. Other countries, as well as the EU, are aggressively pursuing trade agreements, structure and other deals. Here are five major ways we can engage in the region to increase US competitiveness. First, we need to move quickly as quickly as possible on a regional trade strategy. With the U.S. withdrawal from TPP, our Asian partners are openly questioning the U.S. commitment to the region. With only three FTAs in Asia, U.S. exporters are at a significant disadvantage as other countries aggressively pursue bilateral and regional FTAs, most notably the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. There is a critical need for the U.S. to find pathways and platforms to pursue improved market access for U.S. goods and services that reflect the high standards of TPP and conform fully to trade promotion authority. Further, we need to recognize that our existing FTAs in the region are keeping us competitive. Without them, the U.S. would be lagging even further behind. I want to underscore the Chamber's strong support for the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. Chorus is a good agreement as negotiated and concluded, the most advanced U.S. FTA yet, and we should push for better implementation, not renegotiation. Second, we need a fully armed and empowered U.S. export import bank to help maintain U.S. export competitiveness in the region. China, Japan, Korea, the EU, and others provide export and project finance that support their companies in Asian markets. We need to reauthorize and fully empower the Exim Bank. Third, we need to ensure adequate funding and support for the foreign commercial service. FCS officers are valuable assets for American businesses, particularly small and medium-sized companies seeking to expand their export sales. Fourth, we need to maintain and reprioritize U.S. foreign assistance. U.S. foreign assistance could be a much more important and effective means of concrete support in the region. Fifth, we need to use regional organizations to pursue U.S. economic interests. In Asia, showing up is very important. It will be especially important post-TPP to have the U.S. government leaders travel to the region regularly to register high-level U.S. interest and engagement, in addition to hosting leaders here. Ambassador Lighthizer's participation in APEC was positively noted by our partners. And it's commendable that President Trump has already committed to attending APEC, the East Asia Summit, and the ASEAN meeting. We need to show constructive and full engagement by U.S. and cabinet and sub-cabinet officers to ensure U.S. business and economic interests are well represented. Getting such people appointed and confirmed is critical in this regard. Lastly, given the tense security situation in Northeast Asia, the need for close cooperation with our strong allies in Japan and South Korea on all fronts is greater than ever, including economic engagement. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ms. Overby. Our second witness today is Dr. Robert Orr. Serves as professor and dean of the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. Prior to joining the University of Maryland, Orr served as uh, the Assistant Secretary General for Strategic Planning in the Executive Office of the United Nations Secretary General from 2004 to 2014. Uh, Served in senior posts in the Government of the United States, including Deputy to the United States Ambassador to the United Nations and Director of Global Affairs at the National Security Council. Uh, I'll have to read his hockey bio, I guess, in a different part of this, uh, Senator Markey. Welcome, Dr. Orr, and thank you for being with us today.
4: Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Senator Markey, uh, Senator Portman, Senator Kane. This is an incredibly important subject that we're discussing here today. In 2017, we face a global economic landscape that is changing with lightning speed. Nowhere is this more evident than in the Asia-Pacific region. If the United States does not engage, compete, cooperate, and lead across the width and breadth of the Asia-Pacific region, we stand a very real possibility of squandering the unique leading economic and geostrategic role we have carefully crafted over many decades. The United States is well positioned to take a central role in shaping the global economy of tomorrow, continuing its long tradition of advancing innovation and competition, as the pillars of progress. To do so will require full engagement by the United States across three distinct but related spheres of economic policy in the region. First, trade. Second, development assistance. And third, investment and business development across the region. On the question of trade, there can be little doubt that the U.S. pullout from the Trans-Pacific Partnership has left America's friends and allies in the region frustrated, indeed, befuddled and looking for partners. They continue to seek trade partnerships among themselves with the 11 remaining countries of the TPP agreeing to explore how to move forward absent the U.S. uh, absent the U.S. uh, at the recent APEC meeting. If the U.S. does not find a way to fill the vacuum and demand for economic partners in the region, it is clear that China will attempt to. The Asia-Pacific, despite decades of growth, remains a developing region with the largest numbers of poor people in the world. While the U.S. has pulled back from the Asia-Pacific region, China has systematically increased its development assistance through both bilateral and multilateral mechanisms. The establishment of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank reflects the increased role China sees for itself in the region, successfully securing capital commitments totaling $100 billion, from leading nations worldwide, including many u s allies, in the face of China commanding a greater role for itself, cuts to our economic development tools in the region usaID OPEC exim bank, will only quicken our retreat. Numerous studies show disproportionate economic and political returns on u s development assistance dollars. The trump administration's Administration's budget proposal eliminates USAID's development assistance account, winds down the activities of OPIC, seeks no new funding for Exim Bank activities, and zeroes out all climate related funding across the federal budget. Congress must exercise its authority to completely reverse this dr- these draconian and self defeating cuts. Given global competition, especially in the Asia Pacific region, we cannot afford to be penny wise and pound foolish. Perhaps the most important economic dynamic in the Asia-Pacific region is the sheer scope and speed of sustained economic growth, creating massive and growing markets for both goods and productive investment. The geoeconomic and geostrategic game of the 21st century will increasingly play out in the Asia-Pacific region, especially on issues of energy, infrastructure, natural resources, changing consumer demands, and various forms of economic transformation in the face of climate change. These sectors will shape global markets for decades to come, and how businesses and countries respond to these opportunities and challenges will directly affect their standing, indeed, their relevance. China is already moving to take advantage of the opportunities posed by these defining issues, seeing them not just as vehicles for economic development at home and abroad, but also to command regional and global leadership. It is aggressively pursuing renewable energy development, as noted by Senator Markey, to address domestic energy needs, having been the world's largest investor in the technology since 2012 and is prepared to invest more than $360 billion over four years. China's State Grid Corporation has proposed and is now taking a leading role in envisioning a global energy interconnection, which would fundamentally transform the world energy system by creating a global grid to drive clean energy development. Innovation is occurring in the finance space, with China clearly signaling its intent to be a leader in the field. It is moving towards the rollout of its national emissions trading scheme following a several-year trial of seven regional trading schemes. From the outset, this national market will cover over 7,000 firms accounting for nearly half of China's emissions, reducing inefficiencies in their economy and making themselves more competitive in the process. Recent global growth in green bonds is also being driven by China, which has gone from almost zero bond issuance in 2015 to accounting for 39% of the global total in 2016, in one year. In this context, the U.S. can do a number of things to ensure its interests as well as those of its allies and partners in the Asia Pacific region. First, work with allies and partners to construct a global trading regime with the United States at its center. Uh, I would also concur with Ms. Overby's comment on the regional trading scheme. Secondly, fully and strategically fund the key instruments of economic development in the region, including appropriate USAID accounts, OPEC, Exim Bank, the World Bank, uh, Asia Development Bank, and the UN system. Third, stay in the Paris Agreement and make adjustments to climate policy within that flexible and universally agreed framework. Fourth, accelerate our own energy transition to cleaner and more cost-effective fuel sources and build commercial partnerships around the Asia-Pacific region based on cooperation in this area. Fifth, focus on smart infrastructure and smart energy grids at home and around the Asia-Pacific region with friends and allies. Sixth, advance work at home and abroad on climate-smart agriculture, where the U.S. remains highly competitive. Seventh, put a price on carbon, and in so doing, squeeze inefficiencies out of our economy to make it as competitive as it can be. Nothing within the global climate agreement prevents a conservative climate policy involving carbon taxes, the likes of which former Secretary of State James A. Baker III and George P. Schultz, as well as former Secretary of the Treasury Henry M. Paulson, Jr., have put forward. Eighth Support U.S. federal financing for science, technology, and innovation and for bringing those innovations to market. And finally, pay close attention to human capital flows and how they are affected by exclusionary visa policies. The United States has a long and demonstrated economic leadership in the Asia-Pacific region advancing a vision of innovation and competition to achieve progress. Countries are only prepared to hook their fate to a global leader who has shown that it understands their interests and their views. It would be the height of folly for the United States to give up that leadership role it has played on addressing the climate challenge and issues seen by all countries in the region as central to their security and prosperity. I thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh,
0: Thank you, Dr. Orr, and uh, again, thank you, Ms. Overby. Uh, we'll begin with questions now. Uh, just to, you both laid out a series of themes or principles, goals, that perhaps that we should uh, focus on. Uh, Ms. Overby, you talked about the five things, you know, regional uh, trade strategy, empowered XM bank, uh, adequate funding for FCS, uh, reprioritizing U.S. foreign assistance, and using regional organizations to pursue regional economic opportunities. Uh, Dr. Orr, you laid out nine, nine, nine goals or ideas, talking about trade. Uh, uh, renewable energy, uh, climate agreements, um, and a number of others. As we approach legislation to set a long-term strategy, not just a, a four-year presidential term or eight-year presidential term, but a long-term strategy when it comes to the economy in the region, should a strategy be focused on, um, let's enter into a trade agreement, a bilateral trade agreement with Japan, a bilateral trade agreement with, uh, with, with another nation, Vietnam, you, you name it, or should it be more encompassing than that and, and a, Overall regional strategy, getting to the idea of a TPP type a 2.0, or should it be focused on China, on balancing China? How, how do what goal overall should we focus our strategy economically in the region for the next ten to twenty years? Uh,
3: from my perspective, I think focusing on writing the rules. Uh, Right now, you have the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. This is a China led 16 country uh, negotiation going on, and the U.S. is not at the table. Uh, in Hanoi, we heard the TPP 11 trade ministers talk about a commitment to finding a way forward uh, with that agreement. The U.S. is not at the table. So we're not participating in the two largest. Uh, agreements in what we think is the most important uh, part which is getting the rules right um, but of course the U.S. business community supports any agreement that will uh, open markets uh, and allow our firms to compete so whether it's bilateral or multilateral our answer would be yes we need to get in the game and increase our activity there
0: and could you uh, Dr. Orr I don't know if you want to add anything to that I don't want to cut you off I'm sorry
4: Uh, I would concur. It really is a question of getting in the game. Um, There are uh, key bilateral discussions on the table, and those can be very positive. But the, uh, the, the dynamic is a multilateral dynamic. The fact that the 11 countries that were uh, negotiating TPP are still talking with each other, still working together, uh, provides an opportunity if the United States is ready to seize that.
0: And now you've both mentioned that the 11 other nations in TPP having conversations with each other without the United States. You mentioned the RCEP and uh, China getting together and setting rules. Um, Could you talk a little bit, as as far as you are aware, what's the status right now of conversations on bilateral trade agreements in Asia and other dialogues that we're having throughout the region?
3: Um, There is increased activity. The European Union has um, uh, vastly accelerated their uh, bilateral FTA negotiations with a myriad of countries in Asia Uh, And the Chinese have been very clear about their indication to try to move RCEP to a conclusion this year. Uh, And the 11 uh, TPP countries also are looking to try to do something with the high standards uh, and the strong rules in TPP. Um, They reaffirmed in Hanoi that the reasons that they entered TPP, even without the U.S. participation, are still valid. So from an American business perspective, we see the region moving on without us.
0: And could you talk about the political and economic uh, consequences of a successful RCEP and the U.S. uh, not entering into any substantive
3: the Regional Comprehensive uh, Economic Partnership is viewed as a much lower standard agreement than TPP. Uh, Basically, it appears to be um, a group of uh, tariff agreements that are going to be cobbled together. Um, Although the Chinese have have said that they're pushing for higher aspirations, um, some of our friends in the uh, RCEP countries uh, indicate that they do not expect it to be high quality. Um, So on the The political side, um, we're deeply concerned with China's Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, their One Belt, One Road, uh, and their Silk Roads Initiative. They are putting enormous uh, financial resources and political capital behind uh, making friendship, building connect. Activity in Asia and the United States is on the outside. Um, trade agreements by definition are preferential. The countries in the agreement benefit from them. The countries on the outside are excluded from those benefits. So uh, we are deeply concerned about the direction. Yeah,
1: thanks Senator Markey. Uh, thank you Mr. Chairman very much. Um, Dr. Orr if I could come back to you. Um, this is a quite scary prognosis you're making for the gap that could be opened in clean energy job creation uh, between the united states and china you also mentioned that they are now in the process of beginning to plan for a global grid in order to accommodate a renewable energy revolution which of course could be a part as well of their massive investment in electric vehicles um, as Part of their economic plan for the future and those are two huge sectors the energy and the automotive sector for the united states but for the whole planet can you expand upon that uh, a little more uh, so that we can understand what you th- uh, are telling us is going on in that
4: country thank you senator markey the uh, chinese have a very strategic intent with their investments in the clean energy sector Uh, I have been traveling to China at least twice a year for the last decade, and I have watched year over year the players in China broaden and thicken and deepen uh, that are working on clean energy at home in China and around the world. Uh, They intend to dominate this space. Uh, They're doing a very good job of it right now. The investment numbers are staggering. Uh, They are creating markets at home and using that to be able to project those markets into other countries. In Asia? In Asia primarily, not Mm -hmm. exclusively. They are also making investments in Latin America and other regions as well. But because they have such a deep market for renewables in their own country, they can produce them at very cost-effective rates. Um, I mentioned the Asian Infrastructure uh, Investment and Infrastructure Bank, but we best not forget other instruments that they are using. The China Development Bank is being capitalized uh, for big efforts in this area. Uh, There are other instruments. The One Belt, One Road initiative is not just an economic initiative. It is a geostrategic initiative. Mm -hmm. They are binding countries into their orbit. Uh, They have just uh, held a, a summit that uh, uh, the President of Turkey declared, the Prime Minister of Turkey declared, I'm sorry, the President of Turkey declared that uh, their plan was to link up with the One Belt, One Road initiative and provide the channel of all these uh, products to Europe. Uh, this is a geostrategic order uh, that is designed by China to do exactly what we don't want to see, which is a pivot away from a move into the Asia Pacific Instead, cementing their dominance on markets on the can, other can side.
1: Could you just, you know, conceptually talk about what a cross-national smart grid using renewables as the basis for it in the Asia region—just those countries that are abutting China—could uh, mean in terms of the deepening roots, uh, uh, the deepening roots um, uh, that they could create by binding those other countries, to an energy, electricity, all-electric vehicle future for an entire region, not just that one country?
4: Every country I've visited in the region, uh, every global conference I've been to in the last decade, either as a U.S. or a U.N. official, I have seen the State Grid Corporation of China. They have a presence. They are projecting it. I was in Houston just uh, uh, a year ago. And at U.S. energy conferences, the State Grid Corporation of China is one of the leading players. Uh, So they are looking at this as a regional move, but they are not hiding their ambitions for a global grid that is driven by uh, the Chinese State Grid Corporation. Uh, They're starting with conversations and, in fact, investments with uh, countries abutting China to begin a smart grid that would uh, be able to take on board uh, renewables of all kinds. Uh, This is something that is part of their uh, kind of neighborhood strategy. Uh, But they're not going to stop there. You
1: you mentioned in your testimony $60 billion in Chinese smart grid investment just through 2020, just three years from now, $60 billion. So what do you project that could explode to become by 2030
4: in fact you you need to take uh, even the announced numbers with a grain of salt the Chinese have a way of understating the numbers when they when they're talking about their uh, stated objectives Uh, I think their stated objective of 60 billion in smart grid uh, by 2020 will probably be achieved well before that I would expect the numbers by 2020 to be higher Um, And I think how high it goes depends on how many takers they get. But if the indications are uh, correct that all of their neighbors are talking with them and they are starting to talk to a number of U.S. partners and allies as well. So it moves very quickly from the economic realm to the strategic realm in terms of building relationships and dependence on that grid.
1: And uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. That that was always one of the visions of uh, Buckminster Fuller this cross-national grid uh, that would bind people together, that would show the interconnectivity of all of us on the planet, but I don't think any of us ever envisioned that it would be the Chinese uh, that would uh, implement such a strategy, but it is something that actually makes a lot of economic sense uh, and it requires us to be thinking through what the implications are. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to
2: the witnesses. Um Just a a topical uh, issue. Talk a little bit about risk factors in the Chinese economy. I saw the news this morning about the uh, Moody's bond uh, credit rating downgrade in China. And just share with us a little bit your perspective on what that means and some of the risks that they're facing.
4: Senator Kaine, uh, I think, as, as you well know, uh, there are many risks in the Chinese economy. Um, while they are a juggernaut of growth over decades and have amassed uh, uh, huge amounts of capital that can be deployed strategically, there are still huge inefficiencies in their economy. Um, there are still uh, huge dangers <clears throat> for instability in the Chinese economy, and they are very conscious of that. Many of the decisions they make on the, on the economic side Are about that. Interestingly, one of the reasons after years of trying to uh, argue with Chinese officials that they needed to invest more in clean technologies, uh, they got religion not because of uh, global environmental goals or the like, they got religion because of the political pressures arising out of the pollution in their biggest cities. Mm -hmm. Uh, But once they got religion, the investment started to flow dramatically. Um, So I think these um, inefficiencies uh, in various parts, sectors of China remain there. There are some risk factors there. But uh, I would say that the experiment on seven regional um, carbon markets is a very interesting exercise. Mm -hmm. Some of their carbon markets failed. Some of them succeeded wildly, and others came in between. They're now moving to a national carbon market. They will systematically squeeze inefficiencies out of their production processes with this national carbon market. We're not pursuing anything of the like here, and our inefficiencies in various uh, uh, sectors uh, won't benefit from that treatment. So I think while the risks are there, they are aware of them, and and they move money to try to address them. Uh, I do think we do need to be concerned not just about uh, Chinese success, but about Chinese failure, should some of these risk factors blow up in their face? Ms. Overby.
3: Uh, thank you, Senator Kane. Um, this year, China will have their 19th Party Congress, which is a very important milestone uh, for President Xi Jinping. So I think he will be driven to ensure. Uh, notwithstanding the the instability and the potential risk factors, uh, he will be driven to ensure as much stability as possible uh, so that he can make it through that party Congress successfully. Um, as uh, Dr. Orr mentioned, uh, there is enormous inefficiencies in their system, excess capacity, um, but I think they are going to be, this year, uh, as much as ever before, focused on to the outside world. It's going to look calm and secure.
2: Um, a second question. The, uh, we have f- a funny way of doing jurisdictional divisions within the Foreign Relations Committee, and I'm the ranking member on the Near East, South, and Central Asia, which includes India. Um, and in talking about other nations in the region and ways to position bilateral with other nations – you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about the U.S.-India relationship. Talk about the U.S.-India relationship as in, in this sense of sort of the Asian, Indo-Asian economy, and what are some opportunities that the U.S. may have there either directly with India or even, you know, vis-a-vis or contra some of the Chinese activities.
3: Oh, well, sir, I'll start. Um, um, India is part of RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. That's made up of the 10 ASEAN countries uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and China and India. Um, And from what we know about the RCEP negotiations, uh, India and China have a challenge agreeing on much. Um, So while the Chinese have been very clear that they want to drive uh, these RCEP negotiations to conclusion this year, uh, there is question in the region whether that will be minus India um, or whether uh, they perhaps will lower their standards even further uh, to accommodate India. Um, I, I do think there is, uh, between those two um, uh, great powers, there is an opportunity for the United States, mm-hmm. um, but we must engage, um, and okay. I'll stop
4: there. Dr. Orr. India is moving quite quickly in a number of areas as well. Uh, again, on renewable energy, which uh, is kind of a golden thread running through this hearing, Uh, India is thinking big and moving big. Uh, They have big goals on solar and wind. They are meeting them, they are surpassing them, and they will keep attracting investment, both domestic and international. Um, Their Smart Cities uh, initiative of the Prime Minister uh, has many components, but I think uh, it's a strategic vision that is uh, both at once developmental and economic. Uh, I had the privilege of traveling uh, uh, to India with Michael Bloomberg uh, last year. We met with a number of the top business leaders in India, uh, talking with them about what they were going to be doing in the climate and energy space, and virtually the head of every conglomerate in India, whether or not they are coal-based, oil-based, or anything else based, um, are making investments now in these sectors. So while I described China as putting these huge dollars, 360 billion uh, over the next four years, uh, India is gonna be mobilizing a lot of internal capital in this what area as well. Um, this race is on and it is something that the United States has a technological lead, uh, has a potential market that we could be extremely competitive globally, uh, but right now we're not making the decisions we need to to compete with these giants. One final issue I'd mention, Senator, uh, with respect to India, um, the, uh, the Indians are um, uh, coming from a lower uh, baseline in terms of their economic development. Uh, they know they have a lot of catching up to do. They're being quite strategic in certain sectors. They're heavily dependent on the IT sector. Um, just in, in my role as Dean of a School of Public Policy, I've been engaging with a number of Indian officials. Uh, they are extremely interested in cybersecurity right now. Um, this is important to them. They see this as important to their key industries and they know they're uh, lagging behind. So I think uh, you see a strategic intent on the part of the Indian government like the Chinese government.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thanks to the witnesses.
4: Thank you, Senator Kane, for that. And I completely agree with you. In fact, I've had a number of
0: discussions with uh, uh, various uh, Asia experts and others in India about how we can, through some form of adverse possession, do a hostile takeover of the other committee's jurisdiction uh, and uh, just take India. So I don't know if we can – is this a proper form for a business meeting? I'm open to a motion to add India to our title. Uh, if we want to do that, I don't know if Senator Risch is listening. In Noting or the or absence not. of a quorum, <laughs> that's right. But, uh, but I do think, on a serious point, though, I I think that our Asia strategy, which includes uh, uh, opportunities to work with India and in the Indo Asia area and the alliances that we create, the ANZUS alliance, uh, we have to make sure that we include India in these discussions. And so, I think it is very important that we do this. So, uh, on a serious note, um, thank you, and maybe next Congress will accomplish that. Uh, Sorry, Jim Risch. Um, Ms. Overby, I want to talk about two of the points you made in your list of five. Uh, You talked about uh, the reprioritizing U.S. foreign assistance and using regional organizations to pursue regional economic interests. Could you further elaborate on that? I think you said reprioritizing U.S. foreign assistance and and, uh, using regional organizations. Just talk a little bit more, more about those two points.
3: Sure, Mr. Chairman. Um, What we mean by reprioritizing U.S. foreign assistance, um, U.S. aid is such a small percentage of uh, the um, 150 account. And used effectively, uh, we think it can help uh, expand America's influence in Asia. And by using regional uh, agreement or regional organizations better, We're referring to APEC, um, uh, the U.S. ASEAN uh, Summit, the East Asia Summit. Uh, these are all opportunities where the U.S. is, is participating. Uh, and as I mentioned in my testimony, um, Asians are very nervous. The withdrawal from TPP that... Uh, Prior to this election, uh, the U.S. was leading, and we were pushing hard to ensure high standards, uh, comprehensive rules, which are very important uh, to American businesses. As we talk about China and India and what they're doing uh, in clean energy, um, you know The U.S. has very strong uh, innovation capabilities, uh, but we need those high-standard rules to ensure that our our innovation is rewarded and, frankly, protected.
0: Yeah, and, and I want to get to that, too, because these, these rules, these high standards that we have, uh, when we talk about the goals uh, for uh, economic uh, opportunity in Asia, uh, should any economic approach that we set out, any, any goal that we set out, uh, what do we need to include in terms of sort of rule of law, IPR, uh, you know, intellectual property right kind of conversations? How do we address that?
3: Well, I think we we start with the digital economy. Um, uh, inside TPP, the, uh, the e-commerce chapter for the first time uh, clarified cross-border data flow and data server location rules that made it um, – easy for data to flow across borders and um, uh, prevented countries from demanding that servers be located within their jurisdiction. Um, Also, of course, strong IP protection. The U.S., one of the the most innovative country on earth. Um, We need to be able to protect that innovation and be rewarded for it.
0: And and so, like in, in the bill idea, this concept that we have that focuses on you know, national security issues, economic securities, human rights, democracy elements. If you have an economic component that talks about the importance of the alliances, that talks about the importance of trade and opportunity, do you need a, a, a standalone segment in there on these issues of the standards as it relates to Uh, intellectual property rights, those kinds of things?
3: Um, We think so.
0: Legislation that's short of a a trade agreement in and of itself, you should still include that. Uh, I
3: I would support that, absolutely, because um, rule of law is uh, still being developed in Asia, and those rules of the road for trade are being written as we speak. Right now, we have a hodgepodge of spaghetti bowl rules, different bilateral agreements, different regional agreements, TPP was seeking to uh, to raise the standards significantly, um, and I should point out that the U.S. was the driver until when Japan joined uh, the negotiation to be the 12th country. Then it became the U.S. and Japan as the demandeurs of high standards for most of these high uh, comprehensive rules and standards. Um, so it is our belief that we absolutely need to have clear rules, comprehensive. Comprehensive and high standards.
4: Dr. Orr, anything you'd like that? <coughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, just on your your initial question about foreign assistance, uh, in, in my testimony, I named not only our, our bilateral vehicles that are uh, proposed to be fully defunded, um, which I think would do us great damage, but I also named uh, some of the multilateral vehicles that we need to use. Uh, as Ms. Overby just mentioned, the rules of the road are extremely important and we have codified rules of the road that make sense and that reflect American values and interests through various institutions. We need to use some of those institutions. Um, and here uh, I would point out that while questions have been asked about the Asian Infrastructure Investment and Infrastructure Bank. Um, we do have vehicles that are quite active in the region. The Asia uh, Development Bank and the World Bank do have a portfolio in the region that is quite important to ensuring the kind of uh, development uh, along the rules as, as we describe, and the IFC is quite important in that. Um, just the, the last uh, thing that I would mention uh, is that we've talked about China a lot, and India has come up. Uh, it's striking to me that we have not yet touched on major countries like Indonesia, and let's maybe think about Southeast Asia as a region. Uh, this is a region that uh, very much wants to work with, trade with, get investment from, and invest in uh, uh, the United States. Um, we do need to think about the other uh, subregions of the Asia-Pacific region as uh, important players in and of themselves, and to engage with them on the rules creation because uh, uh, there is not a, a purist stance uh, on that within the ASEAN uh, countries. So working with them, I think a lot is possible. So as you give thought to your legislation, uh, and I would agree that the rules-based system is important, we should base our work through institutions that help secure those rules, uh, but then work with uh, constituencies like ASEAN that are winnable.
0: Thank you, Dr. Orr, and uh, the vote has been called, and so we'll just kind of go back and forth and then
1: probably uh, conclude the hearing so nobody has to wait. Senator Markey? Okay, beautiful. Thank you. Um, I would like both of you to kind of expand upon the the question of the role that these uh, key instruments of economic development in the region Play, including USAID, OPIC, Exim Bank, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, and the UN system itself, in terms of its full funding to make sure that we're on the ground and competing in this region. Could both of you take that question in terms of the importance of these American institutions and their funding levels?
4: Thank you, Senator. Um, All of these institutions play a different role, but the United States has always been the driver in every single one of those institutions you just mentioned. Uh, We get a tremendous bang for our buck. I have served the United States government in various capacities and I have served at the UN. While at the UN, I was extremely struck by how strong the United States is in the system. Um, uh, conventional wisdom within the beltway notwithstanding. When the United States wants something to happen through the United Nations, it happens. Uh, The rules reflect that. The various uh, uh, areas within the UN's purview, everything from the international postal system to trade issues to investment rules, um, are codified uh, with a disproportionate U.S. voting share. Um, And that is to, to our benefit. Um, the, the one other thing that I would mention in terms of institutions that, that we do need to think about, um, there are a number of informal institutions that uh, engage on, uh, uh, on economic uh, issues. And here, um, by working on climate change issues through formal mechanisms in the UN, I became deeply uh, associated with various uh, energy networks around the world, various sectoral, agricultural sectoral organizations. Uh, These kind of tools are ones that we also need to think about in our strategy. Um, The (coughs) one place where it's come together was in the Paris Agreement. And the Paris Agreement is now being debated in Washington about whether or not we should pull out. I cannot imagine a greater self-inflicted wound than walking away from an agreement that we shaped that is in our interests that every country in the world is supporting and that provides the framework for those various sectors to coordinate around the rules of the road that we have set.
1: Thank you. Ms. Obey. Uh,
3: yes, I would refer to, uh, XM and OPEC. Those are the two that intersect, uh, our members the most. And, uh, Having those institutions available are are additional arrows in our quiver of helping American companies compete uh, in a region that is so dynamic. And I should note that other governments are doing more and more in that regard. Uh, And we saw with the... um, uh, uh, forgive me for using the only word I can think of, the debacle of uh, not having a fully funded, fully operational uh, XM Bank uh, the last couple of years. Um, we need to get in the game and stay in the game. Uh, our companies need support. Um, we at least need to have the same level of support that other countries are providing to their companies. And uh, for many of uh, our companies, it is the small and medium-sized companies that are being hurt the worst.
1: Is there a reason why you didn't mention the Asian Development Bank? Uh,
3: the Asia Development Bank. Um, uh, I think it's important, but I think we see more activity among our companies with um, XM and OPEC.
1: Okay. okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh,
0: thank you. And I think uh, due to the vote, we will just go ahead and wrap up the hearing now. Uh, thanks to thanks to both of you for attending uh, today's hearing for your time and testimony. Thanks to all the participation today. Uh, those of you uh, who attended the hearing as well, thank you. For the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. And I'd kindly ask uh, the witnesses to respond as quickly as possible to, uh, to those questions. Your responses will be made a part of the record. With the thanks of this committee, this hearing is now adjourned.